Cactus Campus and our Northridge Campus, as well as our chapel next door and our venue across the way join us. Uh, let me make a couple of comments real quick about where we're going over the next few weeks and even the next few months. This is for uh, you high control people that like to know the plan and get mild anxiety when you don't. So we're going to help you relieve that mild anxiety right now. We're going to save you a therapy session is what we're going to do. And you can just put that in the offering plate later. So uh, we're, we're revising a series today uh, that we started five years ago called Love One. Uh, actually, we're reprising the series. Uh, five years ago, when we completed our Compelled by Grace vision, it was a massive vision that many of you gave generously toward and served generously toward, where we completely redid the Shea campus, built our new children's ministry center, the chapel, and other places. And then we also uh, continued to pour into Cactus campus at that time and envisioned the day we're at now with Cactus. We were hoping for something like Northridge down the road and committed to multi-site strategy even more. It was a huge deal. And we completed that in 2015. And at that time, when we were getting back into the worship center here, and as Cactus was formula formulating their future and all of that, we decided to do a series called Love One. And, and the strategy, the, the logic was very simple. We simply said that as we've now created more space, uh, let's not fill it with a bunch of, of church people from the church down the road that just might like our new building better than their building, because that would be silly. Let's fill it with people who don't know Jesus. Uh, let's fill our seats with the 83% of Scottsdale and Phoenix that don't go to church on Sunday. And we said the only way that's going to happen is if each one of us love someone around us, care for them, befriend them, uh, pour into their lives, and eventually share the gospel with them, or at very least invite them to church or some other function at our church. And, and so we called it Love One. And it was huge. We asked all of our people to just love one in your sphere of influence. So fast forward now five years, because uh, that worked back then. It was really good. Uh, our pastors were on a planning retreat a few months ago, actually last summer. And, and I said, so what are you guys dreaming about for 2020? And one of them said, I think rightly so, they said, man, we need to keep the, the pedal to the metal. We need to keep our foot on the pedal of love one. Because that's Jesus' strategy, right? Like, what did Jesus do? He walked around Palestine, Palestine loving individuals into the kingdom. And so we decided back then that January would be devoted this month to reprising this idea of, I'm sorry, February would be devoted to reprising this idea of love one. And so we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about it. And, and it's really easy for all of you, your only homework is to get one person in mind. You can start right now, maybe you already have it, but get one person in mind in your sphere of influence that needs Jesus. And what we're gonna do over the next three weeks, myself and then Rustin next week talking about relationships, Kevin the following week, we're gonna be team teach this. Kevin's gonna talk about the Holy Spirit. It is talking with you about how God can use you in the life of that one person. It's love one, that's God's plan, and I think you're going to be in for quite a treat at your church over the next three weeks. Now, after that, we got a bunch of things planned as well. I think you guys are going to love this. Uh, for the month of March, I'm going to do something that I'm embarrassed that I've never done in 30 years of pastoring, 20 years of preaching week in and week out. I'm going to preach through the Lord's Prayer uh, found in Matthew. 
I can't believe if you're Catholic, it's called the Our Father. I'm going to preach through that. And I've never done that. I mean, you would think I've said the Lord's Prayer a thousand times. Jesus said, this is how you should pray, and then gave us what we call the Lord's Prayer. We're going to spend five weeks walking through line by line the Lord's Prayer. And I think you're going to love that. It's going to be a great series for us. And then that'll take us up to uh, Good Friday, or I'm sorry, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. And then in the spring, we're going to do a series called 316. I'll just let you think about that. It's not going to be John 3.16, but it's going to be all the other 3.16 passages that are just as profound as John 3.16. And again, all this is going to tie together, gang, because we're going to ask you in those series after this current Love One series to maybe consider engaging that love one person in your life and invite them to church or invite them to an event here at our church. So uh, good things are planned for Scottsdale Bible, and you are a key part of it. So let me pray right now, and we're going to dive into our topic today. Father, thank you for who you are to us. We just sang to you, and we sang about you, and it was a glorious thing to do. It is a glorious thing to do, to, to remind us, as if we need reminding how sovereign and providential and good and holy and forgiving and grace-filled you are. You've given us Jesus for our sins and salvation. You've given us the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and keep us in line with you. So God, I pray that as we open your book now, that God, you would teach us and fill us with all wisdom and understanding so that we might live rightly for you and embrace your plan for this world. That's my prayer. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So here is what you and I know about life, and that is that most of the good things that happen to us happen on purpose. They don't just fall into our lap. They happen on purpose. You might have never thought about it that way, but you'll see in just a second here that most of the good things that have happened to you have happened on purpose. In other words, when you audit your experience, look closely at your life, many of the good things that we have, have because we took some initiative, we made a plan, we moved forward with that plan, and then we saw some wonderful things happen. It doesn't always work this way, mind you, but many times you look close, it does. So here's a couple of examples. Do you have a career today that you enjoy? My guess is if you do, that in history past, you took some initiative by identifying a vocation you thought you would be good at, and then you made a plan that involved training or college or mentoring or some sort of preparation, and then you move forward with your plan. You got your training, you interviewed for a chosen job, or you started your own company, and now you reap the rewards of a good and fulfilling filling career. But make no mistake, it happened because you did something on purpose. Uh, the second example is a bit more risky, but I'll do it anyways. Are you happily married here today? Uh, hopefully you are. And if you are, my guess is that sometime in history past, you found someone that you loved and then you took some initiative, you asked him or her out, and then you made a plan, you continue to date and spend time together, and then you move forward with your plan, you got engaged or eventually married, and now you reap the benefits of a fulfilling and wonderful marriage. You see, I could go on and on. Children, church, close friendships, hobbies, retirement, they all have the same pattern. Most of the things that have happened to us have happened to us on purpose. They happened. 
due to initiative planning moving forward and eventual enjoyment. And as a quick side note, I'm not suggesting that everything in life happens this way. Once in a blue moon, something falls into your lap, a good thing, but not usually. We usually have to work for it. And there are certainly times where initiative and good planning do not produce what we want. But you look close at what you have today, the blessings from God you have. You have them in part because you did something on purpose. And God blessed your action and initiative. Here's what you need to know, because I'm not taking anything away from God by saying that you and I have things because they, they happen on purpose. Here's what you need to know. You function this way. You take initiative, you make a plan, you execute your plan, you reap the benefits of it because you are made in the image of Almighty God. Did you know that? In other words, this will be a good theology lesson for some of you. God does everything on purpose. Nothing falls into God's lap. God doesn't say, oops. God doesn't say, I didn't see that one coming. No, everything that God does is planned and on purpose. And so could it be that you and I made in his image uh, just function that way as well in our lives? And even though it's a fallen world, there are times where when we do things on purpose, it actually works well. You see, God is absolutely sovereign. He's providential. He's in control. As the Bible says, not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will. And so everything he does, don't miss this, comes from his initiative, his planning, his execution. It all has a purpose that he's accomplishing in this fallen world of ours. God is a purposeful God. He's made us purposeful human beings. We show it in our actions. Now, with this understanding and setup, I want to spend a few moments before we move on to the heart of what we're going to talk about today, uh, telling you about one of the most potent and powerful plans of God that he has ever devised and executed. You're going to love this. It's a plan that has everything to do with how to save anyone and everyone who would take God up on his plan. And to best understand God's plan is to share with you a story of two groups, a story of two groups of people. And before I tell you that story, let me give you the backdrop, the prelude to this story. And it goes all the way back to the very first few chapters in the Bible in the book of Genesis. As many of you know, in the first two chapters of Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates us, human beings, in his image. But then in chapter 3, something bad happens, right? Human beings fall. Adam and Eve sin. They eat the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of that, sin now has come into this world. They're banished from the garden. And now every human being born is born in a state of separation from God. I don't know how you can argue with that. Like babies don't come out of the womb saying, let's go to church. Babies don't come out of the womb saying, where's my Bible? Uh, babies come out of the womb and though they're precious and we love them and they grow up to be beautiful little sinners, amen? They do. I noticed that in my three beautiful children, but man, they just grew up and there was something in them that was separated from God. And all of us feel that. And that's why we need to be taught and dragged to church and told about Jesus and all these things, because it doesn't come naturally. There's something in our soul that's separated from God. That's the backdrop to the story of the two groups. 
Now, to best understand this story of the two groups, I need to spend about four minutes giving you an Old Testament theology lesson. So tune in, because this is really important to understand the first group and why God's plan is so powerful. Let me read you three verses from the Old Testament. You'll start to understand this first group. God is speaking here in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, and he says this. For you, Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it wasn't because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you. And in keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, there's a huge mouthful of information in these three verses here, but I put it in yellow so you can follow the logic here. God says that that in his story to save the world, he began by choosing one nation, the nation Israel, over in the Middle East, still there today. And he said, I chose Israel to be a people holy and set apart to me, a people of my treasured possession, a people that I chose. But here's what's really important. It wasn't because there was anything in them intrinsically that made them better than another nation. He chose them because he chose them. He chose them because he loves them. And you have to ask yourself, okay, I get that, but but what's God trying to do in all of this? Good question. Second verse that will answer this question. In Exodus 34, verse 10, God is speaking again, and it says, and he, God, said, behold, I am making a covenant or a contract before all your people, meaning Israel, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any other nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Now we're getting somewhere. So God chose Israel, why? Theologians have agreed on this for thousands of years, to display his glory to them and the world. That's why. We're so fallen, we're so separated from God, that God said, I'm gonna set up a nation that I choose that's no more special than any other nation, but because I choose them, they will be, and I'm gonna display my glory like a diamond on a black mat. I'm gonna display who I am through this nation. And I'm gonna do powerful things so that it's unmistakable that it's me and the rest of the world, which is the other group, remember two groups, the rest of the world will start to see and salivate after me and Israel. And sure enough, that's what happens. Uh, Look at Leviticus chapter 26, verse 45, third verse in our theology lesson here. God speaking again, he says, but I, will be is, but I will for Israel's sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, here it is, in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, I am the Lord. So there you have it. God says, I'm going to redeem Israel. I'm going to save Israel in the sight of everybody else so that they might long for me to do that for them as well. So don't miss this. God's plan was to reveal himself as well as the way to himself in and through Israel to eventually be a light to all the other nations of who he is in all of his holiness as well as his love and compassion. And so add it all up. 
This is not complicated. You got two main groups here in God's plan. The Jewish nation of Israel, who were the recipients of his love and grace, his redemption, and then the Gentiles. That's what they're called. In Hebrew, it's goyim. So if you ever talk to a Jewish person, they might refer to you as part of the goyim. And they mean that both positively and negatively. It simply means that you are not of God's chosen Israel nation. You're of the other group who's looking on to what God is doing. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. Now, with this brief background, let's accelerate and fast forward to the New Testament to the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And it's here that we see God's purposeful plan explode upon the scenes. A very radical plan that would allow, that would blow the doors wide open and now include anyone and everyone in God's redemptive purposes. Man, this is so cool. And to best see this, I need you to look at Romans chapter 15 and specifically verses 15 through 18 and then verse 21 and try to pick up on God's plan unfolding here for the world. This is what it says. Paul the Apostle is speaking. He says, on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. Here it is. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the people of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. As it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will now understand. Go back one screen here. I need you guys to see this. This is very, very profound. When they read this, in the first century, I'm telling you, they were scandalized by this. I'll explain it more in a minute. But simply notice now, thrice repeated, Paul says that the gospel of Jesus came, the gospel of Jesus brought to now include in God's plan everybody else. The two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, now the Gentiles are included, the Gentiles are included, and the Gentiles are included. And notice, because this is important, and this is what was scandalizing to that culture back then, that Paul's language is the same language that was used of the Jews in the Old Testament and how God saved them. That's really important for you to see. In other words, Paul describes himself here as a minister to the Gentiles. That word literally means one who functions in the temple. The Jewish temple, most likely a Levite, assisting in the sacrifices and the offerings. And Paul says, we're now including the Gentiles in that as they believe in Jesus. And then he calls himself a priest to the Gentiles. Again, it's Old Testament language and imagery being used here, but now in light of the Gentiles. And then he even calls the Gentiles an offering. An offering in the Old Testament, as many of you know, was the pathway to forgiveness and sin, to restoring a right relationship with God. So add it all up, minister, priest, offering, Old Testament imagery and language that, that was used of Israel and God's redemption of her, but now in light of the Gentiles to include, to, to communicate their inclusion into what is now or has been now historically reserved for Israel. 
Two groups brought together in order to receive God's blessings in Jesus Christ. A summary verse would be this, Ephesians 3, 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Wow. And we know from other parts of the Bible, and this is really important as well, that the only thing God wanted from the Gentiles and now from the Jews in order to be a part of his purposeful plan to save this world is what? He wanted faith from them. He wanted them to believe in his son, Jesus, whom he sent to this earth. And it is through faith in Jesus and the gospel through Jesus' shed blood on a cross for our sins that now both Jews and Gentiles come into the kingdom and experience God's salvation and forgiveness. And in case you've ever wondered, and maybe now it makes sense, this is why the gospel is so critical, the gospel of Jesus. Because it's in the gospel of Jesus and only in the gospel of Jesus that our sins are forgiven and now everybody has a chance to come into a vital and ongoing relationship with God. It's in the gospel of Jesus that now everybody is included. And the reason that that's important, gang, is because our culture today, almost unique to any other culture in the history of the world in the last 2,000 years, completely misses this and has it backwards. How many times have you had somebody say to you, man, you Christians are so narrow-minded. You say that Jesus is the only way and you're so exclusive. You ever heard somebody say that? It's common to say that today. I don't know how to convince people otherwise except to say, you got it completely backwards and upside down. Because 2,000 years ago, when the gospel came, nobody said it was exclusive. They said the opposite. As you're going to see in the minute here, the Jews said, what, you're going to include the Gentiles? Well, we don't want them. And then the Gentiles would eventually say, man, we got to still put up with the Jews. I, I mean, come on, God. You know, and God said, no, the barn doors are wide open right now. Jesus, blood on a cross, opened up his arms wide and said, come ye, come all. Come prostitutes, come tax collectors, come sinners, all the people that they didn't think should be included in the party, Jesus said, come. And nobody back then was saying, man, that's kind of exclusive. They were saying, this is the most inclusive thing to ever hit humankind. But you see, in our culture today, they think that it's because of Jesus, and it is because of Jesus, that we're being exclusive. And somehow we need to say to them, no, Jesus is God's way to include everybody including you. That's the message that we have. It is the most inclusive thing to ever hit planet Earth. In short, don't miss this. It's in the gospel of Jesus that God screams that everybody matters to God, that everybody has hope, everybody can be saved if they but embrace Jesus. As Peter would say so clearly in 2 Peter 3, 9, and some of you need to change your theology just based on this verse. Peter says, God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's plan is to open the barn doors wide open and say, come ye, come all. And the only ticket into the entrance is faith and trust in Jesus. Now, we have just about 20 minutes left, and I wanna wrap up today 
by getting really practical with you. And some of you are saying, we haven't been practical up to this point. Not really. We're going to get really practical right now. And I want us to note a couple of important implications for you and me that flow out of this purposeful plan for God. These are things that God asks, requires, demands of any of his followers because it's critical, you and I are critical, to his plan. And here's the first thing that God wants from you and me. And that is that God wants his followers to embrace, that's the key word, embrace his plan for this world. He wants his followers to embrace his plan for this world. Now, let me kind of run three steps ahead of you right now with where I think you're going as you read this first point. I sit there in my home office and whenever I come up with a point that I think is rather profound or biblical, I then put on my lawyer's hat because I'm a lawyer's kid and I always think to myself, what would be the rebuttal to this? That if I was having a cup of coffee with Richard or a cup of coffee with Clark or, or something and, and I said, hey, God wants you to embrace his purposeful plan for this world, what, what might they say if they were in a stubborn mood? And so I try to upstream where you're going, and I don't always hit it, but I think I have today, because here's what I think a lot of Christians say at this point. They say, well, Jamie, I, I do embrace God's plan for this world. I mean, why wouldn't I? I think that's the common answer here. And yet what you need to know is that the acid test for whether we do or do not embrace God's plan all comes down to whether or not we believe the statement that I threw at you earlier, and it's this statement, that everybody matters to God, with the key word being everybody. That's what I'm asking you today, because this just tells me whether you embrace God's plan or not. Do you truly believe, with every fiber in your being, that everybody in this world matters to God? Everybody. Because you see... It would be quite a big problem for God and for us if his loving and faithful followers were not 100% on board with his plan to save the world through Jesus. And that everybody has hope. Everybody you meet and rub shoulders with is a potential redemptive relationship. If we don't believe that, we're not really embracing God's plan. And what you need to know is that historically, and I'm going to try to believe better for you and me today, but historically, Christians have had trouble truly believing that everybody matters to God. I said this to you earlier, but when Jesus first inaugurated this Gentile inclusion 2,000 years ago, and when Paul first began writing it, people's initial response was to be blown away by God's inclusive grace here. Like he's not just choosing the Jews, he's choosing everybody else too. Like they were blown away by that. But, but then as they thought about it, and it's almost comical when you read the New Testament, as they thought about it, they were also a bit thrown that God's grace would be so sloppy as to include the opposing team. In other words, the Jews basically said, and Paul had to fight them in this, you're including the Gentiles, you gotta be kidding me. We're the apple of God's eye. And he's only got room for one apple in his eye. And we're it. And you can't be including Samaria and Judea and Persia and Asia Minor and the Greco-Roman world. We hate them. They don't matter to God. See, that was their thinking. And then when Paul finally convinced the Gentiles about Jesus, you know what their response was? 
why do we need to include the Jews in this? I mean, they're kind of a stiff-necked people. You ever read the Old Testament? And, you know, God got mad at them and brought in all these foreign armies. And, you know, they don't really matter. And even down through the years, 2,000 years, people have actually developed entire theologies that says God doesn't really have a plan for the Jews. And it's a lie because God does. And the Bible is very clear on that. See, both, ta- both sides, Jews and Gentiles alike, have historically found it hard to believe that everybody matters to God. And again, I know how you might be responding right now. You're saying, well, Jamie, you know, but I, I don't hate Jews and I don't hate any other racial or ethnic group. But, but you see, here's the problem, gang. I've been watching you for a long time and I know my own heart. Let's be really honest in the house of God today. Many of us, if not most of us, have a private list of individuals that we would never tell anybody about. We certainly wouldn't write it down. We don't even talk to God about it. But on this private list, we at the very least have written them off. And at the very most, we, we really wonder if they, they really matter to God. Some of us have family members that we don't get along with. We don't see a lot of redemptive potential in them. Some of us have a neighbor that we can't stand. Some of us have a coworker who lives a totally decadent life and rubs it in our face. Or for you student, a fellow student that teases you about being a Christian, <laughs> How about this? Some of us have politicians in our mind that hold different views than we have. Let me repeat that. Some of us have politicians in our minds that, 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 that have differing views than us, and we never pray for them. We never even envision that they might come to Jesus. We can't even imagine them changing because we just don't have enough faith, and we don't really believe deep down that everybody, everybody, matters to God. Some of us have radio personalities we hate because they fly in the face of our values. Some of us have Hollywood celebrities we can't stand to watch because they are rich, famous, and godless. Some of us have authors that we hate because they write trash. You only know that because you read them, but we hate them anyways (laughs) because they write trash. In other words, we all have a secret list of people, and again, we'd never say it this way. None of us would ever say, well, you don't matter to God because we'd be you know, fearful of a thunderbolt coming down upon us. But, 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 but we deep down doubt whether or not there's any redemptive potential in them. Aren't you glad that the first century church never thought that about Paul the apostle, who before he was saved was called Saul of Tarsus? He stood over the stoning of Stephen He persecuted the church like crazy. And you got to laugh at this because heaven, who sees everything, God knew that that, that he was a gnat's eyelash away from repenting and coming to God. So there he is on the road to Damascus, thinking about the next Christian he's going to kill. And whap, God just calls him right into the kingdom. And and God said, God said, I'm going to change this man. See, we never know who's next on God's list. God wants all to come to him. And, And we need to repent of our of our lack of faith in the reality that everybody matters to God because even if you have just a few people on that list, you're not embracing God's plan because God says everybody is included in this Gentile inclusion. They have to embrace Jesus. This is not universalism, but everybody has the potential to come to me because of my love for them. This is a true story uh, happened to me back in my last church 15 years ago. It's almost embarrassing to admit, but I can't make these things up. When I was in fourth grade, I got beat up. I've only been beat up once in my entire life, thankfully. And, 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 I, and I 
didn't, I only got beat up once, not because I was big and strong, but because I was small and fast. So I ran from people a lot in my childhood. And, uh, but this is back before the day where they cared about bullying or anything like that. And one day, a, a third grader got mad at me when I was in fourth grade, but he's a big third grader. And after school, he beat me up. And it was traumatic for my fourth grade psyche. I remember it, you know, even to this day. And, uh, and, and it was traumatic because one, it was a third grader that beat me up. And then secondly, I, I was physically assaulted. Didn't have to go to the hospital or anything like that, but I was a bit bruised. And I thought about that all during junior high and high school. And then I went to college. I got saved. I became a minister. And then I was ministering back in my hometown for six years as the senior pastor of my home church before I came here to Scottsdale. One day back around 2003, I think it was, because we were still in our old sanctuary at that time at the church in Cleveland, uh, I noticed in the second row somebody that looked familiar. And sure enough, it was the kid that beat me up when I was in fourth grade. And initially, I felt kind of good about it because he was big. He turned into a big boy, and he was muscular, and he had tattoos, and he was just sitting there with his arms crossed in the second row, and my heart skipped a beat for a second there. I thought, I wonder what he's doing here. And so we got through the service there, and after the service, he did come up to me and say hi, and I said hi, and he said, I'd like to get with you if you don't mind. I said, well, sure, and I thought maybe he wants to apologize, fat chance, but I thought maybe that, and... So that, later that week, he was coming in for an appointment. I did a little bit of research on him, came to find out that after high school, he had gone into the military. Again, big, burly guy. He had served in, the, in, in some of the military skirmishes, and he, he had done very well. And he came back to Chagrin Falls, where he were, and was running a uh, home repair business. He was known for driving around town with his pickup truck and would repair homes. And, and when he came in to talk to me, I had no idea what he wanted to talk to me about. And, and my heart was immediately changed. Because he came in and he didn't even remember. I didn't mention, he didn't, he had no clue. He didn't, re- he probably beat up a lot of people back in that day. And he, <laughs> he did not remember beating me up. And he came in and he told me how he had accepted Jesus in the military. And he told me how since then he had gone through a divorce and struggled with alcoholism and his life was a mess and he wanted to get right with God. And he said, and you're the only pastor I know, would you help me? And I said, no, you beat me up when I was in fourth grade. I'm not going to say any of that. I had the wonderful privilege over the next few years to disciple this guy, to encourage him, to help him get his footing again spiritually in Jesus. And it taught me once again, as if I didn't already know this, to never write anybody off. Not for tattoos, not for what they drive, not for how they look, not for your history with them, because you have no idea what God is doing in a human heart. And more to today's point, you have no idea how God wants to use you. I hope that for some of you, because I've done this in the past since then, and it's powerful, that you include on your loved one list somebody that drives you nuts right now. Richard, somebody at work that you just, yeah, you got them, I know that. People like that, just somebody that you go, man, I, I don't know God. God, it would be a miracle if you ever moved in their life. Man, I dare you to put someone like that on your loved one list and then see how God uses you there. Everybody matters to God. And then once we get this, as we come down to the the final length of our time today, notice the second thing God wants us to do. And this we're gonna spend more time with over the next two weeks. And that is that once we embrace his plan, all God asks of you is to get intentional with that relationship that you have. In other words, we've asked you simply to select one person in your sphere of influence, one person. 
And now God wants his followers to get intentional with that relationship. And again, the logic here is flawless. You're intentional in just about every aspect of your life. You brush your teeth every morning. You bathe and clothe yourself. You, you get to church, most of you, on time. You're intentional about your life. You'll go to work or retirement tomorrow. You'll play golf or whatever it is that you do. And as we established earlier, you're going to do it on purpose because God's made you a purposeful being. He, see it this way. He simply now wants you to get on purpose with a chosen one or two people in your life that need Jesus. And the way to do that is to get intentional with them. Ask them out to coffee, uh, play around a golf with them or tennis, take a hike with them, uh, ask them questions, curious questions about their life. Don't go for the religious jugular right out of the chute. Don't say, hey, my pastor's doing a Love One series and you're on my list. Don't do that. That's gonna make it sound as fake as a $3 bill but love them and care for them, invest in their life, and then allow God, Kevin will talk about this in week three, allow God and the Holy Spirit to then ease conversation into uncharted territory for many of you as you then get to share a bit about your story and his story with them. You see, that's all we're asking of you. And you'd be surprised how open people really are to spiritual things. You know, some of us think that many of the people around us aren't interested in spiritual things. I would differ with you. They are, and here's why I know they are, because they're made in the image of God for crying out loud, right? They can't not be interested in spiritual things. Did you know that? St. Augustine said it so well. He said, inside every human being is a God-shaped hole that can only be filled by God himself. So everybody around you that's getting drunk at the bars or getting drunk at the country club or chasing gals or chasing guys or, you know, is into the New York Times bestseller list that have nothing to do with Jesus, don't let any of that fool you. All of them deep down wonder, could there be more to this world than just the crazy hedonistic stuff that I'm into? Couldn't there be a God who loves me and wants to know me and let me know him and give me hope for all of eternity? They're asking that, I promise you. They just need somebody safe to admit that to. And you could be that person. You just got to get a little bit intentional. As one author says in a book on evangelism, you just need to walk across the room toward them. He argues that's all it takes, a walk across the room. And you'd be stunned how open people are. This blew me away. A few years ago, there was a national survey that was surveying non-Christians, non-church people about their spiritual interest. And they found that, that, that of the people they surveyed, again, this is just a few years old, that 82% of the people polled said that if they were invited by a friend to church, they would most likely attend. Isn't that interesting? 82%. So four out of five people surveyed said that if a friend, not a stranger, but a friend invited them to church, they would most likely attend. And yet, this will blow you away, the same survey also revealed that only 23% of church-going Christians today actually invited somebody to church that given year. So you got four out of five people that said they would go based on an invitation and less than one in four Christians ever invite them. Is it me or do you see a mismatch here? And that's just inviting them to church. I mean, that's kind of like the, you know, the summit of the mountain. There's so many things you can do before then to befriend them and love them that allow you to share your story with them. 
One of the things we're going to do at the end of this series, just in two weeks from now, is that we're going to unveil, you're going to love this, a video curriculum that we've been working on for months. It's produced by myself, Rustin, Kevin, and then also Brian McAnally, our, our guy who heads up our evangelism uh, projects here. And it's a video that's a four-week video curriculum that we're going to ask every small group or if you just want to go through it as an individual, you can, uh, to take in this church after this series that's going to help you learn how to share your story and his story, which is the gospel, in a non-threatening way. How to do so in a way that's highly relational, but also very clear as God opens up doors for you. So we're not kidding in this love one venture, but we're asking you to just identify one person in your sphere of influence that God might have you invest a little bit more intentionally in, and let's see what he does with that. Final story, and then we'll pray. This is, again, a true story. Five years ago, when we did the Love One venture, we asked everybody in the church to identify one person. My daughter, my middle daughter, was in the crowd. At that time, she was a recent college grad, and she was a, a business gal. She got a job at a great business here in town and, uh, and, and, and was starting her career. And she heard this call to love one, and there was somebody in this huge company that she was working for that she felt really needed Jesus. There were a lot of people, but one particular gal that she fell in love with, and it was a single mom and, and, and a lot of struggles, and she said, I think I'm going to minister to her. I didn't know any of this. One day she was driving home from work in Tempe to her condo and I called her and said, hey, sweetie, how was your day? And she said, oh, is this, this, and this? And then I had lunch with so-and-so. And And I said, well, I don't know so-and-so. I audit all of your friends. Who is this so-and-so in your life? And and, and she said, well, and she almost made me cry. She said, she's my love one friend. I thought, wow, my daughter, I didn't ask her to, I didn't twist her arm, identified one person and, and loved that person called her last night. She now is in Austin, Texas, my daughter is, because she got transferred with her company. And I, I called her and, and told her, I told the church about her loved one friend. And she said, Dad, I talk to her just about every day. She goes, she, she still needs Jesus. But she goes, for five years, I've journeyed with her and I'll journey with her till the end. She goes, that was the most amazing challenge I ever had to love one. You know, the Bible says, and it's a great little prophecy in the Old Testament, it says, someday a child shall lead them. It's actually referring to Jesus. I'll just sort of blow it away for you right now. But, but a child shall lead them. But could there also be a, a, a double prophecy, a double fulfillment there, where, where Jesus knew that there would be times when our children actually teach us profound things about Jesus? Here's what I know, is that if you dare to love one, even just pray about it today. Maybe you don't have somebody in mind. Just pray about it. I promise you, God is going to empower that. Next week, Rustin will talk about how you can go further relationally with them. Then Kevin will talk about the power of the Spirit in that re- redemptive relationship that you have. My hope is that as I look at a few empty seats here and at Northridge Cactus Chapel and Venue, that when we see them start to get filled, they'll get filled with people that you loved, people that will tell stories years from now. Now, somebody cared enough to introduce Jesus to them, and their life was changed forever. We're not asking you to be Joe Evangelist or Susie Evangelist. We're asking you to love someone and open up your life and your story and his story to them, and you can do that. Just be a little bit on purpose. Father, thank you for all that you are to us. Thank you, Lord, that for the vast majority of us here and at other campuses and venues, you have saved us 
And you've called us into your kingdom. You've given us joy unspeakable and hope eternal. And we sing about it, we celebrate it, we study it in the Bible, and we love you for the salvation you've given us. But God, we do not want to be selfish with it. We do not want to be the type of people that go through the rest of our life with hands lifted high to you, never being used by you to actually invest in another life that needs to be saved. So God, I pray that as we give thought, each one of us individually, to the one person that we're gonna get in mind during this series to love and invest in, that God, right now, you'd begin preparing the groundwork for that, that you'd be preparing their minds and hearts to be loved and be drawn close, and that God, fertile soil would be developed, and as seed is scattered, that God, it would take root, and there'd be no thorny soil, no weeds to choke it out, but God, that you would have the angels rejoice as you call people into your kingdom. God, that's the mission of our church to, to know Jesus and to make him known. So God, help us to do that, we pray. and Empower us by your spirit. We thank you for this wonderful teaching that comes from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. amen.